0: Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show where this episode, we're going to be talking about the present and future of the electricity grid. I'm Ed Crooks. Joining me today is Melissa Lott, Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Hello, Melissa, how are you?
1: Hey, Ed, I'm doing great. Yeah, it's been a fun, fun couple of weeks here, but it's good to see you and good to be on here with Elliot today.
0: Yeah, Exactly. As you say, we have an exciting uh, special guest joining us on the show today. I've been thinking vaguely about kicking off with an impromptu a cappella performance of maybe California Dreaming by Mamas <laughs> and Papas or possibly uh, do. California Please. Love by Tupac, which is another so much great uh, music from the great state of California, because what we're going to be doing today, as I say, we're going to be talking about the electricity grid and very specifically the electricity grid in California and Very pleased to welcome a special guest of the Energy Gang this week to talk about it, Elliot Mainzer, who is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the California Independent System Operator, CAISO, which runs the California Grid. Really looking forward to the conversation with you, Elliot, today. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Me too. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks
0: so much. I mean, there's obviously an enormous amount to talk about in California. I think it's going to be a conversation that will be really interesting to people, not just in the state of California, but around the world. California, of course, is one of the world's largest economies in its own right, generally reckoned, I think, to be the fifth largest in terms of GDP uh, ahead of the UK and ahead of India. And it's also a pioneer, of course, in many areas in the development of low carbon energy. California generated about 23% of its electricity from wind and solar power in 2020, with a further 6% from geothermal. And that number for wind and solar compares to about 11% uh, on average for the US as a whole in that year, 2020. So you can see... California is a long way ahead of the US average in terms of its reliance on variable renewables. And of course, as the proportion of variable renewables on the grid rises, that creates a whole new set of challenges for the grid operator. And those challenges and the ways that we can solve them uh, is going to be the subject, the focus of what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into the meat of that discussion, Elliot, though, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about CAISO, about what the organization's role is, and really just to kind of set the scene for listeners to explain how you fit into that broader landscape
2: of the power industry in California. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. You know, you you talked a little bit about the scale of California. So California is a a very a large state, very ambitious, 40 million people, of course. And you know, with the CAISO, we actually manage the transmission system and operate the electricity market. And really maintain real-time reliability for about 80% of the state of California. So our balancing authority includes the big investor-owned utilities, PG&E, San Diego Gas & Electric, Southern California Edison, and it is um, a huge responsibility just keeping the lights on for for that big fraction of the state. We also actually have some functions that extend outside of the state of California. Uh, Back in 2014, uh, we set up uh, what's known as our Western energy imbalance market. Uh, We now have about 80% of the load in the Western United States participating in that real-time energy market. And a few years ago, we also took on reliability coordination responsibilities for a big chunk of the West. So we are, you know, by statute, primarily a California entity here, really vested in the state and its success and reliability, but also have extended our roles and responsibilities outside of the state. Thanks.
0: That's a fantastic introduction. Tell us maybe also just a little bit about yourself. What's been your career path? How did you get to that role that you've got at the moment as a chief yeah. executive of Kaiso?
2: Now it's been a, it's been a very uh, very interesting run. I actually I grew up in California. I'm originally from San Francisco. I went to school at Cal Berkeley and. Uh, ended up in, in graduate school in the East Coast back in the mid-90s. I was a child of rest- of the restructuring of the electricity industry, went straight to Enron right out of grad school in 1998, thinking that was going to be my ticket to greatness. Uh, I think we all <laughs> sort of know where that ended up. I actually yeah. always had a bit of a passion for the for the clean energy markets and actually set up the renewable power desk at Enron back in, in the early 2000s. But in the California energy crisis, I, along with Thousands of other uh, people ended up losing my job. I decided to, when running from the private sector and went over to public power, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time, and I started at the Bonneville Power Administration. Ended up having just a really fabulous career at BPA, 18 years at BPA, uh, culminating with seven years as the administrator and CEO from 2013 to 2020. And during that period of time, I got very involved. Uh, with the California ISO as they were establishing the Western energy imbalance market because they really needed to use the federal transmission system uh, to get the big utilities in the Northwest into the market. So I got to know the CAISO in early 2020 when uh, the previous CEO Steve Burbrick announced his retirement, uh, just decided that would be a great opportunity to come back to California. And so I ended up actually uh, starting that job in uh, late September, early October 2020, about six weeks after the uh, rotating outages of August 14th and 15th. So it's been uh, game on since the minute I walked in the door, but it's just a fabulous opportunity to be part of everything that's going on in California and a lot of great people to work with as well. Perfect
0: introduction to what I want to talk to you about then, which is exactly that question of outages. As you've been saying, crucial part of your role at Kaisu, the most important part, I guess we'd all agree, is maintaining the reliability of the grid, reliability of power supplies to. 80% of the California population that you serve. That became very difficult in summer of 2020. At rolling outages, as you say, was a big problem at a time of extreme heat in the state. It feels like we're suffering with some pretty grueling heat right the way across the United States, including in California right now. How are you seeing the outlook for this summer? I mean, presumably it's kind of, you can never say never in terms of predicting whether there's going to be attitudes or not, but how are you feeling about prospects for maintaining reliable supplies over the coming summer?
2: Sure. Well, you can imagine, you know, August 2020 was certainly an inflection point, uh, maybe a bell ringing. You know, it was certainly got everybody very, very, very focused on reliability. And the state's actually been doing a significant amount of procurement of new resources uh, since August. Just last year, I think California we put about 5,500 megawatts of new resources on the system, I think the most in the state's history. And just since last year, we've got about 4,000 megawatts of additional capability. So going into this summer, certainly there's been some progress putting new capacity on the system, but we've also been really struggling uh, with the weather. You know, actually, back in uh, December of 2021, we had, I think, just record snowpack. There was literally like 20 feet of snow accumulated in the Sierra. And then we promptly went into the driest. Uh, January and February on record. So this 1,200-year historical drought in the West is a significant issue. It's really degraded our hydro capability, and the kind of heat patterns that we're seeing now. You know, in August 2020, it was that west-wide heat dome that just stressed all of the supply regions. California being still dependent on imports, you know, that was the you know a key piece in in why we eventually had rotating outages in 2020. So I think for this summer. The supply picture is a little bit better, but there still is, I think, significant risk. We get into one of those late August or early September, really, really west-wide hot heating events. Our grid can be under strain. So what we've tried to say to folks is, look, it's certainly rotating outages are by no stretch uh, an inevitability, but they are a possibility, and we need everybody to be on alert and particularly on the demand side to help out if we get into stress grid conditions.
1: I say elliot i don't know if it's fair or not so i grew up mostly on navy bases in california i went to uc davis for my undergrad we used to very lovingly refer to california as like america's disaster theme park like we moved in when there was a drought and then i remember monterey becoming an island <laughs> at one point because it was flooded out and people were kayaking around you know to like check on their neighbors um the heat waves like the the droughts in particular though when it comes to thermal plants and cooling and like how do we pull from the region like it just It seems like one thing after another. And in preparation for this chat today, I was going back to 2020 when you were coming into this role and reading some of the pieces that my colleague, Cheryl LaFleur, who we both know quite well, um, wrote about what's actually ailing California's system. And one of the questions on my mind is, like, how much have the past not even two years really changed things for the tools that you have in your bucket? Like, I remember one of the things that was highlighted in this op-ed that Cheryl wrote was just... About like the lack of clear accountability, the regional coordination, like all of that, like you're supposed to keep the lights on, Kaiso, but you can't actually require that things get built or say that things should get built. These types of things. I'm wondering if are we in a better position overall?
2: It's a great question, and I think it's important to kind of understand the sort of regulatory and accountability um, mosaic in California. You know, it's there is a relatively complex division of labor of roles and responsibilities on resource adequacy in California. You know, the the California Energy Commission does the long-dated demand forecasting and kind of the broadest overarching resource planning, but the California Public Utilities Commission has the key sort of day-to-day responsibilities around integrated resource planning, resource adequacy administration, setting the planning reserve margin, and ordering the procurement for the big utilities. The ISO, we have key injects into many of those processes, but we really in many ways are, are not as involved in the resource planning or determining the composition of the resources. We provide kind of an accountability test. We require the utilities to show us their resources and we administer sort of incentives and penalties for non-compliance. But at the end of the day, it requires this complex dance between those three entities to really ultimately keep the lights on.
0: What about then the greater significance of wind and solar power in California? Obviously, I think people who perhaps don't live in California, but who watch what's going on there, there's a natural tendency for people to leap to using reliance on variable renewables as a reason why California has been suffering problems with grid reliability, why you had the problems that you had in the summer of 2020, why, as you say, there's potential issues to be concerned about this summer. Do you agree that having more wind and solar power on the grid makes things more challenging for you
2: i think that certainly from a grid operations perspective wind and solar create unique challenges but i would say that we have a very i think very good solid understanding of what those challenges are and i think that the, you know the fundamental challenge is just recognition that we need both the renewable energy resources and we need dispatchable capacity on the system that can be available, particularly after sunset. And I think we've been, you know, accelerating the efforts to get that capacity on the grid. I think in 2020, you know, we hadn't quite caught up. This last, you know, several years, we've got close to 4,000 megawatts of lithium-ion batteries on our system now, which are a great complement to that resource. And energy storage in general is going to be a big part of the clean capacity play for California in the years ahead. So I don't see, I think we recognize profoundly that you need a diverse portfolio of energy and capacity resources. And even within solar, you want to spread the resource around geographically. Same thing for wind. We need, on the energy storage side right now, we have quite a dependency on lithium ion four hour duration, we want to diversify the durations and the chemistries and get into much longer duration storage. So I don't think that the, that the problems were created by the wind and solar. I think that we've had to evolve the resource portfolio. We have to re- evolve the resource adequacy planning, and we have to move quickly to make sure that we've got the transmission infrastructure and the substations ready to interconnect this next big generation of resources that we're going to need.
1: I feel like, Elliot, it seems to come back to this dance you're talking about, except for it's not regulatory bodies or entities in California. It's actually the dance between technologies and priorities. So you got to keep the lights on. We've also got to keep the cost down. Um, and so you've got the variable renewables. I think California, you're right, is making a lot of progress with diversifying the types of energy storage, which is the second bucket that you need to keep the, the price down. I will say, like, I think there's a lot of space that California has to play, and this is out of, of Kaiso's hands. But, like, in terms of thinking about long duration storage beyond even 100 hour batteries, like, you can diversify chemistries, but it's like, what do we do to actually bridge seasons or those two week periods where wind and solar are both not as great as you'd want, these types of things? Um, but then the firm dispatchable challenge. And as California continues to take firm dispatchable off the system, what are you replacing it with? Is it more interconnections into your states? Is it more coordination across different states? Okay, how far does that get you? But at the end of the day what are you going to replace it with so you still have that firm dispatchable backup the other point that i want to highlight and what you're saying is if we were building the grid today we could think about operating things differently with higher levels of variable renewables but the reality is we're not coming in with a blank slate like we're designing it with a legacy system that was designed around motors and like you know power plants that had certain characteristics they brought with them we're going to a future where we have less of that and that's a challenge but I think California, Texas, and a few other parts of the world are really showing us what we can do in terms of using higher levels of those variable renewables.
2: Yeah, it's true. You know, affordability is a key issue inside California. And not only affordability, but you know, equity, environmental justice. These are key tenants of the plan. And so and and just as the ISO, even though we may not have the fundamental statutory responsibility for the resource planning or deciding what kinds of resources come on the grid, there are lots of things we can do. To support affordability first of all just kind of getting ahead of the curve on transmission and understanding you know through our long-term transmission planning what is the least cost path to sufficient transmission infrastructure so we can get ahead of the curve you know time is money so interconnection queue reforms we're really leaning in to try to get the resources on the grid as expeditiously as possible and then also making sure that our market design really adapts and evolves for for both incentivizing bulk scale resources you know, we've done a lot to change our market design uh, for for the battery storage. We've made some progress there. We can continue to do that. And of course, also the distributed side is really important. I'm a big believer in trying to enable the distributed energy resources and making sure that they can play in the bulk market patch for those that are actually interested. So those clean interfaces between the distribution system and the and the transmission system are going to be really important as well. So good price incentives, good cost recovery, effective infrastructure planning and delivery those can really help the state meet the decarbonization objectives and hopefully do it as, as affordably as possible. So you talk about geographic diversity as being
0: one of the important parts of coping with high levels of wind and solar on the grid, and you, as you say, talk about good transmission planning as being very important. There are plans, right, to sort of basically strengthen the whole grid across the Western US, right, and to, to fit the Western states and the Western inter- interconnect into... A much more robust framework with a lot more transmission capacity across it to enable different low-carbon resources in different states to be connected up to centres of demand, Obviously, typically along the coast. How is that plan going? Is that making real progress, do you think? And, and how important is it that we get that stronger grid
2: built? Yeah, I would say two things. First of all, so I'm just I re, you know I've spent a lot of time when I was a BPA I spent a, a number of years managing the you know the transmission policy group there. I came into California and just seeing so urgently how important it was for us to develop a long term transmission outlook for the state. So just last year we worked very closely with the California Energy Commission, the PUC, a lot of stakeholders across a lot of stakeholders across the West to really kind of map out the longer term architecture for California. The current numbers that are at play, and I think these will change over time, is we need about 120 gigawatts of new resources over the course of the next 20 years. Our forecast right now, at least our initial transmission plan, has about 100 of those gigawatts coming from resources within the state of California, about 10 gigawatts of offshore, and as much as 10 gigawatts from other regions inside the western United States. And by trying to define the actual physical needs of the customers of California it gives us a chance to a map out the architecture for the resources for the transmission that will be needed inside California but also for us to be able to engage effectively with the other utilities and transmission developers outside of California so that we can really open up a broadly geographically diversified uh, portfolio of resources across the west get new resources into California that have nice diversification characteristics and also strengthen the transmission interconnectivity between the different parts of the Western United States, that's going to be really critical to opening up the value proposition for a West-wide electricity market. And we can touch upon that a little bit more.
0: Well, indeed, because when you describe it, it sounds great. How likely is it to happen, do you think? I mean, it seems to be that building transmission infrastructure is one of the hardest things you could do in the United States right now. Is it realistic to build a plan based on that new infrastructure getting built?
2: It has to happen. It's it's a defining challenge of decarbonization, and we're very motivated. I'm honestly quite enthusiastic. If you look at the map of the West right now, there are several major transmission lines in advanced stages of development. I think we have the opportunity now to to work both with California and other states to sort of sharpen the business case. And get a number of these things subscribed. I think it is doable. I think we must figure it out. I think we have a lot of support from FERC to figure this out right now. There's a lot of interest inside the state. Recognition that transmission, of both inside the state and even across the region, is going to be important. The other thing is, you know, the a, another key strategy for us. You know, we think a key element of achieving the the West's you know, energy policy objectives is going to be really to open up the energy market across the entire West United States. Our Western energy imbalance market now, as I mentioned, uh, covers about 80% of the load in the West. It's produced about $2 billion of economic savings uh, since it was established back in 2014. And we're now taking that market, which is primarily a real time energy market and looking to extend it into the day ahead timeframe, which has the opportunity to open up even greater economic value. It will require some changes in governance in California, and there's good progress on that front as well. But we think that continuing to have the major entities across the West working together to leverage resource diversity and transmission connectivity across that really broad footprint is a key element in our overarching clean energy strategy.
1: So a couple of different things on that point. So I know we the Center on Global Energy Policy wrote a paper. Let's see, it came out in December right after the presidential elections. Talking about what we can do around building out the grid without new legislation, because completely agree with you, Elliot, Like if we don't figure out how to make our grid what it needs to be, namely the strong and flexible backbone that we need for decarbonization, and not just across power, but across the entire economy, which is increasingly electrified in any affordable transition pathway, um, we're going to be in a, a world of hurt if we don't figure that out. World of hurt meaning expensive power prices, unreliable power. Or I suppose the most likely of all, not decarbonized power, which has direct impacts for health and well-being um, across so many facets. We could spend the whole show on that. Um, but I want to come to that when you talk about this regional operation allowing CAISO to coordinate with all, allowing us all be friends and neighbors and have a market that allows us to effectively trade things. I know that when I was in California and when I spent time in California, I know pre-pandemic. I remember California legislators like continually re- considering, should we, you know, have this more regional approach, should, but that means giving up some state control. And there was a bunch of hesitation to that, that I, you know, I think we all saw it. And I has that changed at all, given the ambitions and given what's been happening lately?
2: You know, my gut instinct is that is that some of that has definitely changed. I think if you just look um, at the situation today in 2022, relative to 2016, 2018, you know, SB 100 the bill mm-hmm. yep. uh, which mandated that California get to you know 100% of retail sales from renewables and carbon free energy by 2045 that has created just almost such an enormous demand for electricity uh, inside California that we know we're going to need help and resources from out of state to meet that and so that's one thing i think second of all there's greater there's greater alignment i think general greater homogenization of of policy direction in the west not uniform and there's still qu- there's still some diversity but the number of states that are really leaning in now to meet uh clean energy objectives has has also increased in the last few years and i think that the experience of the western energy imbalance market has really shown the reliability and economic value of collaboration, so you know over the course of the of the coming months, uh, that conversation around around a regional market is is opening up in California again. There's some movement within the California legislature to begin talking about the benefits of regional cooperation. I think the key thing is letting all of the key players and stakeholders really come to the table, understand what their interests are, be able to really you know express their concerns, and make sure we have good solutions to them, and ultimately see if there's a value proposition. I am guardedly optimistic, if not quite optimistic that the value proposition is going to play out, but we have to be patient and let people make sure they hear their, have their voices heard.
1: No, I, and I agree with you. I mean, if we look at what history has shown us and taught us, it's that having those voices be heard will get us to more robust solutions that will bring us to a better place at the end of the day. So creating that space is, is vital. Yeah,
2: I, I, I really, you know, just I'll just mention, you know, when, when, um, when I was up at BPA as the Bonneville administrator, the Pacific Northwest has always had very, very important concerns about preference to power, about their, their, their FERC jurisdictional status, and when we were looking at getting Bonneville into the energy imbalance market, it was just critical that we spent the time really listening to the interests of the public power customers, answering all their questions, really doing the math, making the business case. And that ultimately allowed a Bonneville to sign an implementation agreement and just back in May. Uh, they joined the Western EIM, and so we couldn't be more pleased and honored to have the federal, you know, transmission system now, and the, and BPA and all those customers part of the mix. And we're going to continue to work hard uh, to continue growing with them.
0: That is very interesting. So, is that something you had wanted to pursue when you were at Bonneville? Finally, came to fruition.
2: Yes, when I at that, we signed the implementation <laughs> agreement in in the fall of 2019, and I was a little bit like a nervous, you know, expectant dad watching it. And and when they when they went live back on May second. Uh, I was very happy, deeply appreciative of the partnership, and also they had a fabulous implementation. They, did, You know, our, my guys will tell you that was one of the cleanest implementations we've seen and they came in really prepared. And look, that kind of diversity, you know, the federal system, you know, that, that provides a tremendous amount of, of clean energy and capacity of the system, diversifying that market, being able to trade energy and leverage diversity, you know, just the last couple of weeks. You know, last week it was really hot in California and in the desert Southwest, but it was nice and cool and rainy up in the Northwest. And we just took advantage of that diversity. That's the big thing that the West, you know, is both exposed to and both can benefit from. You know, the diversification of resources, temperature regimes, time scales, all of those things can help, can help contribute to a more robust system if we can leverage that diversity. But we gotta keep our head down, design the market well, work on governance and keep the relationships as healthy as they possibly can be.
1: Elliot, I was up in the mountains uh... <laughs> let's see west an hour and a half of calgary in alberta um two weeks ago uh with a whole group of electricity nerds uh electricity nerds unite as in policy and academics and other folks um who talk about these issues and i had a fascinating conversation with severin bornstein and jesse jenkins and joshua rhodes so about how the diversity across time zones affect demand and supply and what that means in a net zero world um, as you have population centers, either being more East or West in time zones, obviously, you know, California coast, it's pretty obvious where, where the demand centers are, but, um, what that means in terms of balancing out those two. And there's a lot of, it seems like low hanging fruit for co-optimizing those things based on the, the divisions across time zones, uh, and how they affect supply and demand. So fairly, really yeah. fascinating. And I think important. Well, that would have been a fun either.
2: conversation to be, be part it of. Was, so it was sounds, very good. Sounds excellent. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was great. We were out on the deck. The sun hadn't gone down because, you know, it's Calgary in the summers are outside of Calgary. So it was a great, great discussion.
2: That's great.
0: So uh, Elliot, I want to jump back to something you were talking about a little while ago, which is the point about technologies and the technologies that you need uh, to maintain grid stability as wind and solar become more important. And you talked about, I think you said, you say there were five gigawatts of new uh, supply capacity being added to the grid since the summer of 2020
2: yes just last year and we're going to probably roughly approximate that again this year as well so huge huge resource additions
0: right in what technologies then so what are you adding yeah. that's going to be important to help you maintain that reliability
2: you know the last significant amount of solar and batteries uh some wind energy resources uh but you know the, the resource portfolio strategy in the next few years is really built around around solar wind batteries there is some, uh, some expectation that we're going to get some geothermal in the system over the next several years and some longer duration storage which i think will be really important i'm a big believer i'm sure uh, melissa and talking to jesse you talked a little bit about firm the firm dispatchable resources those are so important so we're certainly you know motivated and hopeful to see that technology uh, continue to evolve but you know right now we you know the state i think this principle of resource diversification diversification is going to be quite important because we are loading up quite a bit on on solar batteries and wind and, and I think some additional resources coming in the mix is going to be helpful.
0: Right. Because as we as we've been saying then, those batteries, they're lithium-ion systems, they might have typically a four hour duration. Great for intraday shifting of energy between generation when the sun is shining and using it when it isn't. But that presumably does still leave some big gaps, as you say, long duration storage is clearly needed, is increasingly needed as uh, wind and solar grow, and as you say, other kinds of firm dispatchable power are needed. Do we really have those technologies at the moment? I mean, it feels like lithium-ion is very successful, a lot of investment going into it because the technology is absolutely proven. We've all got several lithium-ion batteries in our homes right now, and uh, production at scale means the costs have been collapsing. It's much more competitive now than it was even a few years ago is likely to get more competitive in the future. It just seems to me like we don't really have a technology for long duration storage that is going to be in any position to compete against lithium-ion batteries for some time to come. So I think Well no go on sorry Melissa you disagree. What do you think? But
1: no, 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 I'm I'm not disagreeing. I'm saying this is actually the key point. So it's like the idea of when you look at the whole system, variable renewables, shorter duration storage, like these lithium ion batteries, longer duration, and I define that as like could be weeks if we need it or months even like you can really you can really push things out and these firm dispatchable questions like they have different roles so they're not substituting for each other so you want the variable renewables you want the batteries but then you need other things and to your point ed there's only a few kind of that long duration seasonal storage that we're going to shift it over seasons that are even remote possibilities to us and one of them is hydrogen just as an example and like, there's a lot of question marks with that, including around cost, including if we can blend it into a system above certain percentages. Right now, I you know we can go to you know, 20% or so in our existing plastic pipelines. Let's be clear, not, not the old cast iron. You don't even want that to touch it. But the question is like, how do we get those technologies in place and how do we create the right balance of technologies? If we don't have that long duration storage, well beyond hours, we're talking, you know, days, weeks, months, then we're going to need more firm dispatchable stuff. That's going to, run less of the time. And to Elliot's point, we need a market that then makes sure that they get enough money that they can be around year round for whenever we need them. So everything has trade-offs in this, but I think the idea of substituting one for the other, it's like, no, they actually just complement to give you this 24-7, 365 reliable power mix. Tell me if y'all think, if you disagree with anything I just said.
2: I, I think that's really well put. I think that, you know, when I sort of look at the margin of the next, you know, two, three, four, five years, you know, the lithium ion four hour gets us through this kind of, pressing pinch point of the next few years when the net peak after sunset is really the most acute risk for the grid Uh, but as you really lean in to reduce your greenhouse gas um, emissions and you start having to really ratchet down the energy production of your gas fleet you really start leaning into your off-peak period and you really do start needing those longer duration storage resources to get the bigger fuel displacement so you know i'm keeping an eye on you know the, the iron air technology uh, watching some of the compressed air and carbon dioxide compression technologies that are emerging certainly we've heard that there are some potential for some longer duration lithium ion we know we've got some conventional technologies that are expensive but just maybe necessary at some point of you know, the pumped hydro is a resource that you know you may see a couple of those built uh, but yeah i think the key thing for us right now is just making sure that that we're creating an environment where there where we're not putting up any un- unnecessary barriers To getting these resources on the grid economically as the folks in the investment community and the technology community really try to bring them onto the grid.
0: Right, absolutely. And that was the question I was about to ask actually, which is what can you do then? What should you be doing as Kaiso specifically and as the state of California more generally to ensure that, as you say, the doors are really open to investment in all those kinds of long duration storage firm dispatchable power that's going to be needed.
2: That's right. Well, the energy commission, California energy commission is definitely investing several hundred million dollars in long duration storage. We have a, a, a basically a, a storage enhancements initiative where we're really working with industry to really in, try to understand what, you know, what the bid cost recovery and the spread optionality is going to look like for these new technologies to make sure that as we bring them on, that the market you know helps them recover their costs. You have to think about what the resource adequacy paradigm is going to look like for these resources, how they're going to be quantified, how they're going to be compensated for their capacity characteristics? All those things are at play, and I think you know just having watched the lithium ion curve grow so rapidly, we're very sensitized to the to the potential for these other technologies to come in pretty quickly, and we want to be ready.
1: And just the one piece that I think was inherent in what you're saying there, Elliot, is around demand as the whole system. So you talk about a reserve margin; it's like reserve against what? Okay, you've got a peak, or you know, you've got to know what your demand profile is looking like. So how are we going to do increasing electrification? In our buildings and transport, et cetera, industry as well, for that matter, and manage that demand effectively. So at least as far as the grid is concerned, because you can imagine like local storage kind of you know smoothing some stuff out. Um but how do we do energy management so that we're actually not just exacerbating problems and creating a really expensive system? And I know we've been talking about this for a while, but I feel like we've reached a point where the combination of both a clear target of net zero, not fifty or eighty percent, but like we're going to zero, y'all, that's where we're going. Combined with cost declines around uh, the batteries, the cars, everything that you know allows us to electrify heat pumps, et cetera, like, this will change. But then on top of that, we've got the added complication. I know California is a leader in this of looking at how the changing climate is going to affect demand profiles. And y'all are starting to integrate that in your planning models, which I find rare amongst states. Um, and I think a lot of states are going to learn from this.
2: Yeah, such a good, such a good point. I mean, there's tremendous dynamism right now in the analytical patch in California and, you know, at the Energy Commission really trying to capture some of the new weather dynamics and the load forecasting models and trying to understand what extreme events really look like. What is a one in ten anymore? You know, I mean the probabilities that, you know, that you know the past is really no longer a predictor of the future. It just isn't. So that's a huge challenge. The other thing is just in terms of quantifying your as you're building portfolios, your resource adequacy analytics are getting much more complicated. You know, California is moving down to more of sort of a slice of the day kind of approach, really taking a much more granular look at the system, trying to figure out how, do your, how are your storage resources going to behave? Sometimes they're generators, sometimes they're loads. How do you make sure you have energy sufficiency to get them charged up? What's the capacity contribution? How do they impact with the broader portfolio? All these questions are raising huge analytical challenges, and I think a part of what we need to try to do is make sure that we are able to get granular and get sophisticated but at the end of the day, also come back to a, a broad portfolio look at the overarching system so we can leverage those, those, those economies of scale and portfolio economics and also create a program that provides that creates obligations for the utilities and other load serving entities that they can actually hedge with standard products and services. So there's a combination of, of detail, detail, granularity, and then synthesis and synthesis and interoperability and efficiency, and also to make sure that California's resource adequacy program with all of these new sophisticated technologies can be structured to have interoperability with the broader resource adequacy paradigm that's developing outside of the state. That's a c- critical piece of, of for me, of, of in- ensuring harmonization and making sure that as we build out the energy markets, that we've got resource adequacy paradigms that can communicate effectively.
0: So look, we've been talking for quite a while now without getting into this next subject that I want to raise, but I feel it can't be avoided any longer. We're talking about firm dispatchable power. We have to, I think, address the issue of the single biggest source of zero carbon (laughs) firm dispatchable power in California, nuclear power, specifically the Diablo Canyon power plant. Diablo Canyon is California's single largest source of electricity of any kind. And it's scheduled for closure. The plan is to shut it down by 2025. And there's a very interesting, let me just find the quote here, but um, Keiso, um said last year, this was in a filing to the Public Utilities Commission, um, the KISO's modelling results shows that incremental resource needs may be much greater than originally anticipated, and that the system hits a critical inflection point after Diablo Canyon retires. And partly, I think, because of that intervention, partly because of a lot of other people drawing attention to this concern about what happens when Diablo Canyon goes and it loses this very large source of zero carbon firm dispatchable power, there's talk that maybe its lifetime could be extended. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California has um, floated the possibility of doing that. It seems all to be in a bit of a state of flux at the moment, but certainly that uh, possibility of a life extension, I think, is on the table. So, Elliot, how are you thinking about this? When, when you analyse the market outlook and when you uh, made the comments you, as Kaiso, made last year, uh, in terms of the potential issues that are going to be created for the grid by shutting down Diablo Canyon.
2: How big of an issue is it? It's a big issue. I mean, I think that there are several elements of the conversation that got us to where we are today around, you know, the future of Diablo. I think if you just look at the last six or seven, eight months with the kind of weather volatility and uncertainty, and then of course we had big macroeconomic issues, You know, the supply chain issues around batteries and solar, so this, this tariff dispute issue that hopefully is getting moving into a better place. At the same time that that California was facing significant resource retirements, not just the Diablo Canyon project, but as several thousand megawatts of additional older once through cooled gas plants, it was becoming harder and harder to get resources onto the system, the replacement resources on the system. Uh, we were seeing load growth and generally the kind of uncertainty around weather patterns and volatility. And so I think that the state and the governor in general said, you know, we are facing significant headwinds. Uh, I think Governor Newsom, as, as much as anybody in the country, recognizes the primacy of, of reliability and keeping the lights on for this major economy and the many people we serve. And so raise some questions, you know, are we really, is this, is this sustainable? You know, we... Our role and responsibility in this debate, you know, is is to try to provide the most intellectually honest and transparent, reliability information we possibly can. And we did come out. and We said, you know, we are looking out, you know, twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six, and still seeing some gaps in, in resource adequacy for the state. These need to be addressed. Uh, at that point, you know, the, the conversation around the future of Diablo, given the history there, given the agreement back in twenty sixteen and the ratification in twenty eighteen, you know, that now becomes really a conversation. That's largely going to happen, you know, with with the state and the utility, et cetera, the legislature. and And for us now we're going to continue to support the state in terms of, yes, we agree that you know, pretty much you know all options need to be on the table in terms of maintaining reliability. Uh, and and also just generally articulating a principle that is as we go through this transition, which is so important, we really want to try to make sure that we have the replacement resources and the capacity on the system up and running before we're taking big chunks of capability off the system. So, you know, at the end of the day, we're keeping our head down and doing everything we possibly can to get the new resources on the system through transmission availability and efficient market design. And we will watch very carefully, you know, as this debate plays out in in the months ahead.
0: Yeah, when you put it like that, it sounds very straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, that seems sort of obvious, but it's interesting that, you know, people still need to think about that point
2: yeah and it's and it's not, you know, it's not limited to California. I mean, I think this, you know we're dealing with this this we truly are going through a global transformation in many ways. and we're seeing the transition is proving challenging. The fact that it's proving challenging means that we got to redouble and work harder and harder and harder to make it happen as reliably and as effectively as possible. But I also think that you know if we get into a situation, Uh, in California, where we have to dispatch a a, a tiny amount of, of natural gas generation under a small number of hours to maintain the overarching reliability of the system on the way to full decarbonization. That's not the worst thing in the world if it helps us continue to progress. Obviously, reliability problems are a huge issue for the economy. They're a huge issue politically. We want this transition to be as smooth as possible, and we need to use all of our tools available to us to accomplish it reliably.
1: Well, and that's the key right there. It's using all of our tools. So this isn't just about transmission. This isn't just about generation or demand side. It's all of the above. Like conversations, I think, are often still focused on individual technologies. Whether you're in the federal level talking about a production tax credit or an uh, incentive for wind or solar or carbon capture or wh- what have you. Like the idea is, if we want to do this incredible challenge, we want to actually succeed at it. We need all the tools so that we're not just stuck with one that we're trying to make work. Because a Swiss Army knife is great if that's the only tool you can carry. But man, it stinks when you need leverage underneath your sink because you got a leak. You know, you want something that is much more fit for purpose. And so within all the decisions that we're making at a state and federal level, it feels like the idea that there's an or in here, it's like, no, it's, it's and for almost everything.
2: Yeah, no, great point.
1: And it's at least what the research says. I know Jesse and I, in our conversation outside of Calgary, we, we do not disagree with this on this point. We disagree on other points, but certainly not this one. You need it all.
0: And going back to that point then about having gas-fired power plants that might run for only a few hours or days or maybe weeks a year, does California have a market design that's going to make that possible, is going to make that economic? And presumably, there's also a massive difference between having a market structure that enables you to keep gas-fired plants available for those rare occasions when you might need them, and a market design that's actually going to encourage, uh, incentivize the construction of new gas-fired power plants that would be available just for those very uh, limited number of hours a year.
2: I don't think we're all the way there yet. I think, though, that is an issue that is squarely on the radar screen of our regulators. You know, the, both the Energy Commission and the PC are both looking, you know, long-term, watching that kind of that slow... And steady decline of the dispatch of the gas fleet, recognizing that you're going to have some needle peaks to manage, and you're gonna to have to have you know capacity compensation that keeps these guys around on the grid. And we were our hope is that that happens in the front end of the resource adequacy process so that we're not as the ISO having to play cleanup and doing you know RMR deals, you know and 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 you know kind of having to play defense. And so getting that capacity compensation, right is is a critical piece of the ra program and then of course you know if we if we have to dis, the expectation is we'll have to dispatch someone a relatively small number of hours on the most critical periods and that's that's going to be part of the solution
1: but within this there's a key point to pick up i think ed which is around we've been talking about the grid a lot but there's also the gas grid and so as we start to use our natural gas plants less we also start to electrify more parts of the state in this case or the country there's a great paper that i want to I think I've talked about before on the show, but I'll mention it again, it comes out of um, Haas at Berkeley. So this is Lucas Davis and Catherine Hausman. Catherine's actually at a different university. I'm going to have to, apologies, Catherine, that I can't remember at this moment which university you're a part of. But the idea is who is actually paying for legacy utility costs and the legacy gas grid? Because the idea is until we turn it to zero on a certain leg of that grid, we're still going to have to pay for it. So I have to maintain it. Obviously, safety matters a heck of a lot. And the reality is back to the point you made earlier, Elliot, is that that disproportionately affects low-income Californians in the case of this analysis they were presenting, but low-income Americans, low-income people um, who are still on those systems if they don't have a market structure in which... All the costs are not just sent down to people who can least afford it. So there's a bunch of challenging questions in that that go beyond just the power plant and then the wires that take the electricity away. we got to get the gas into them in the first place. And so there's another grid we got to think about.
0: Yeah, which is a great segue into the last thing I wanted to talk about really in terms of California today, which is the question of the long-term future. So California has made this commitment. We'll be talking about um, SB100, the commitment to get to 100% clean electricity by 2045. How realistic is this, do you think, Elliot? I mean, when you think about that challenge, it seems like it's uh, not really very far away now. What is that, uh, 23 years from now, given the way things happen in the electricity industry? Clearly, a lot has to start changing very quickly in order to get to 100% zero carbon power by 2045.
2: Do you think the state's on track for that? I do. I mean, you know, it's 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 certainly it's a big challenge, but you know, I I am encouraged. I think the level of focus, the level of de- determination and commitment is very much there. And I, I'll offer a couple of thoughts. You guys can can augment. I I sort of think of a of a stack of things that need to happen in order to get to twenty forty five. And it really it starts out I think at the foundation with a really effective resource adequacy paradigm where you really planning and getting the right resources on the grid and understanding their interactions and understanding how they're going to contribute to reliability. Transmission planning and construction, emphasis on construction, planning is great, doing is better, is really critical. We've got to get an additional infrastructure in the grid, so essential. The regional market development, the expansion of the Western energy imbalance market into a day-ahead environment eventually towards even greater and greater integration along the lines of a regional transmission organization. I think that's a critical piece of it. We really do need a vibrant demand response model in California. And I think we're getting there, but we have a lot of work to do to really kind of, and also get to get the demand side, get the load flexibility out of emergency conditions, much more sort of preemptive, flexible demand that can be a real reliability resource for California. Getting a really sustainable paradigm for distributed energy resource development and optimization and dispatch is going to be critical. There's a lot of interest there within both the CPC and the California Energy Commission. And then as we talked, you know, also just recognizing at the end of the day, the goal is decarbonization, right? I think that's, it's, it's reliable decarbonization. And so really investing and leveraging those firm clean energy resources and getting them on the grid with the high energy density. In the right locations and displacing the older base loaded plants is going to be essential so that's kind of my stack i'd love to hear if you have some other things that you'd augment that with
1: i i wouldn't disagree with anything on that list i would just double down on build it <laughs> infrastructure every day is infrastructure day y'all like if you want to actually get to net zero on a time frame that matters for mitigating climate change and protecting human health um and the environment you need to build stuff and this is something that we talked about what a month ago ed on the show which is this reconciling the tensions between I've been protecting this, this resource, this animal, this plant, this, this thing that I really deeply care about. But if I don't mitigate climate change, I'm going to have a massive problem in terms of being able to protect that thing that I deeply care about. So finding that balance. But at the end of the day, I, I don't like, I think it's overused, the interstate highway you know, analogy, but we got to start building in. I, I'm going to use Kevin Costner actually say we just got to start building for the future we want to see. And the baseball we want to see played. we got to build for that net zero future now. And within that, it's nice to think that we could do it without huge grid expansions. But A, that has trade-offs. And B, doing it without any. I mean, the research certainly doesn't support that if we want to be affordable and reliable. And so we got to figure out how to get that done, how to construct, to your point, Elliot. Not just how to talk and permit, but actually how to get steel on the ground. And get it built whether it's overground underground somewhere in between <laughs> just get it built so that we can use it to have a reliable net zero future
0: yeah no i, I do absolutely agree with all that and i noticed melissa you smiling when elliot uh, delivered his line I about well, planning is good doing is better that is a great line which i intend to steal myself that is uh yeah fantastic but with attribution
2: one of my dear, and, and don't attribute it to me because it comes from one of my dear friends from the Pacific Northwest who, who provided lots of exhortation over the years for, for doing great things. So,
0: mm. Yeah, no, that, that is a great point. I mean, one other thing, as I said, I absolutely agree with everything you've both been saying about what needs to happen. One thing I wonder is about how far California is able to go it alone on this and the extent to which federal policy is going to be important in the U.S., to which international agreements, changes in the private sector, what big international companies are choosing to do, and so on. Are, are those things that also all need to be kind of aligned in the right way for California to achieve that 100% clean power goal? Or is it something where just as long as you as a state are determined enough, you're going to be able to get there? Well,
2: look, we're California is big, but in the grand scheme of things, you know, we're, we're we need lots of folks rowing in the same direction, and lots of you know positive policy development and economic development and commercial activities to amplify what we're doing. And Look, we're not the only ones. There's plenty of places around the world, and around the West who are taking on similar challenges, and we look at all those folks as partners, and folks that we want to work together uh, to really you know help develop you know the strategies and the necessary tactics and tools to to accomplish this transition reliably. I would. I would offer uh, for any of your listeners you know one of the things we did last year is we put together a little uh, sort of brief documentary about our experience with energy storage on the grid in california that's something worth checking out on our on our website just tells the story of the policy leadership we really want to see the energy storage revolution extend around the around the world the other thing is that just coming back to home you know california uh, has has never gone it alone you know we've always been uh, dependent upon adjacent states for power for collaboration for partnership for policy insights you know and we have so many important uh, stakeholders who contribute so much to our thinking. Just the work that we're doing right now in the development of our market, we're getting such great insights from from industry and from academia and and you know the environmental community and the regulatory community. So everything we do, uh, we we only succeed by really listening carefully to our partners and then participating in what truly is a global movement and, and learning from everybody else as well.
0: Absolutely, and. Uh, Just to add another plug for that video, that is a really interesting um, little thing to watch. So uh, definitely, if you're interested in energy storage, I would say check that out. And as I've been saying, it's really interesting to talk about all this. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Elliot, for joining us today, because I really think for everyone around the world, sometimes a cliche, and it's not always true to say that where California goes today, the rest of the world goes tomorrow. But actually, I think in a lot of aspects what's happening with energy, um, California is kind of showing the world the way forward um, in positive aspects and sometimes in negative aspects as well. It's, uh, as we've been discussing, it's a complex picture. There's a lot going on, but definitely I think we will all be watching with enormous interest as you carry on on this journey towards decarbonizing the power system. And it's something we're going to be all very keen to see The results of and to see the success you achieve. So, yeah, as I say, great to talk to you. Thanks very much for joining us today. We are just about going to have to end it then, but I did want to do free electrons as usual. These are the the personal things we've all brought in. I mean, I don't know, Elliot, do you have anything for us?
2: Well, first of all, I want to just thank you for having me on 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 the program today. I've been a longtime Energy Gang listener. I really appreciate this and to all of your listeners. And uh, it's just wonderful to be part of the conversation. So, thanks for that. You know, I do have a free electron. my free electron is, is at the moment is 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 Occam's razor, which is this sort of principle of trying to make things as, as simple as possible and no simpler. You know, I really, you know, our the transition we're engaged in is so complicated. It's so challenging, but sometimes I think we have a little bit of habit of making it even more complicated than it needs to be. So I'm really looking for opportunities, whether it's in market design or resource adequacy or transmission development, to really try to get to the heart of issues and to try to craft solutions that are understandable and actionable and, and have a chance of being understandable to key leaders and policymakers. So that's a big theme for me right now, and trying to bring that to everything we're doing.
0: Oh, yeah, that is a great one. Thanks, and great to hear a name check for uh, William of Ockham, who was that uh, great English thinker who actually um, lived not so far from where I grew up in Surrey, the south of London. So yeah, always good to hear him being promoted. Um, Melissa, what's your free electron?
1: Um, I've got two. So the first one I spent, I'm not overstating this. I spent a fabulous two days talking about offshore wind last week. Like it was a really just good discussion um, in New York. It was hosted by a number of colleagues, my old time colleagues, um, Elizabeth Wilson from Dartmouth and Jeff Fitz from the Columbia Etro- Electrochemical Energy Center um, in partnership with you, Dal Lena and her team. And it was an idea of if we're looking at practically what do we need to get built? How do we need to get built? How do we lean into the conversation about offshore wind and figure out what is keeping it from going forward? What isn't it? Because when you look, especially at like congested Northeast, where we're like, how are we gonna build more stuff out? And where are we gonna put more wind and solar and all these things? Certainly there's a lot of room to grow, but but how does offshore wind play in all that? And you know, what are the existing barriers to it? Well, right in the middle of this fabulous discussion, this fact sheet was released by the White House. The Biden administration launched a new federal state offshore wind partnership to grow American made clean energy. And within this ed, the Jones Act came up, and you may not remember this, but the Jones Act is one of my most fascinating pieces of legislation when it comes to like emergency response, and then also how you build wind farms. And so I got it's Chatham House rules, so I cannot, you know, attribute this to anyone. But I was just completely fascinated by a discussion that ensued about what you do when you need to get equipment on. And what happens when you build that foundation for your offshore wind turbine and how, okay, now it's part of the US. So then how you have to like shuttle boats in between the different pieces of it and what that does for logistics and the amount of months it takes to sort out these logistics, all coming back to the Jones Act. Um, But essentially there were four different pillars within this, you know, some federal, um, some, sorry, 11 states getting together to do a federal offshore wind implementation partnership, uh, talking about federal and state actions. But the last one of the four, was about uh, prioritizing financing for offshore wind vessels, all coming back to the Jones Act. Um, and I just, I found it it very interesting uh, to go through at that moment. So I had to highlight it. <laughs>
0: like No, no, that does actually sound fascinating, as you say, and, and something I had really kind of focused on and probably got my head around, just for the benefit of our listeners who might be reasonable people with you know well-ordered lives who've managed to avoid learning anything <laughs> at all about the jones act do you want to just explain what it is and, and why it, it bites on uh, the offshore wind industry in this way
1: yeah and for anyone who wants a good podcast on this go listen to npr's planet money they did a podcast uh when puerto rico was in the middle of their recent energy crisis um and humanitarian crisis as a result of all the power being knocked out but essentially if you go between US ports, I'm gonna just try to translate it and people can tell me if I'm off on of these points. If you're coming from another country into the US, you can use any ship you want. If you're going from the US to another country, you can use any ship you want. You wanna go US to US, you have to make use a US built ship with a US-based crew. Like it all has to be made in the USA and operated by Americans, et cetera. And so this is complicated when you are trying to build huge infrastructure projects at sea. Um, because you're not just bringing the equipment in you drop it off at the port cool someone else can take it from there you're actually having to figure out how to shuttle things from things that in between spaces that become legally part of the u.s as you're constructing them and like the logistics are crazy like so that that's the jones act in a nutshell um, my understanding of it at least
0: mm, and to be jones act compliant typically your costs mm-hmm. are massively higher, right i mean that's the
1: one so I've seen so I think it is more expensive. I will say like I've seen different numbers on this, but complying with the Jones Act is very time consuming and complicated and there's a limited number of ships, so like competition is fierce for the number of ships there, so I can't imagine how costs wouldn't go up. I will also say that I have heard that non-compliance with the Jones Act should you decide to go the I'll pay the penalty route is terrible because How's it explained to me is essentially the penalty for not complying with the Jones Act? You lose whatever your cargo was and whatever assets you have. So like the downside is massive. So um, but yeah, you're competing for a small number of ships at the end of the day. So this applies to all U.S. vessels of all these different sizes. So it's like the barges that go in between each one of the, you know, turbines and platforms out there in an offshore wind facility. In addition to the big ship that actually has to bring in the big equipment. So it's complicated.
0: Yeah, that is really interesting. And yeah, that's definitely going to be one to watch in terms of the way the economics of offshore winds shape up. So, mm. so my uh, free lockdown is also something coming out of the Biden administration, which is um, the plan the president announced, the proposal uh, he had uh, announced last week, which was the idea of having a holiday from the federal gasoline tax, which is something that just had a massive wave of... Uh, disapproval from just about everybody. Uh been rather amazing. Some of the coverage has pointed out that you've had both the Sierra Club attacking this idea and oil industry groups attacking it. Um, you've had even, apparently, according to I think the Washington Post, had a story saying members of the president's own economics team don't think it's a great idea. There was a lovely, um, you, know, uh, you probably know Liam Denning of Bloomberg, very, very nice writer on energy, had a great line saying, it's uh, this proposal is the impotent calling on the dysfunctional to do something ineffectual, all of which is basically totally fair, and I'm not trying to argue that this is necessarily a good idea, but in its defense, I would just say two very quick things about this as a proposal. One is um, people have been saying, oh, this is all a kind of a scam. If you just cut the federal gas tax, then it'll be fuel retailers and marketers that'll collect all the money and it won't really help consumers at all. That doesn't actually seem to be the case. That seems like, actually, it's still a pretty competitive fuels market out there. And there was an interesting bit of research done by the um, Penn Wharton, the University of Pennsylvania budget modelling team, and they looked at some of the um, cuts in gasoline taxes um, that states have introduced during the course of this year. And actually, it seemed like most of those cuts were passed on to consumers. So, I mean, of course, the amounts are never going to be great. The federal tax is only 18.4 cents a gallon, and given that the average price of gasoline has risen by $2.80 per gallon uh, since the start of 2021, it's not going to be massive, but still, it does look like consumers would get some of that. And the other thing people have been saying is, oh, well, it's a very bad idea because prices are high for a reason at the moment. The reason being that, essentially, demand is outstripping supply for oil-based fuels, and so you need high prices to bring supply and demand back into balance. And what you're doing, if you cut the tax, is sort of obscuring that price signal. I think, again, that fails the uh, the test of thinking about the magnitude of the changes here. It's 18 cents after a move of nearly $3. Not going to make all the difference. And actually, I think very interesting. And if you look in the data, you are very clearly starting to see high oil prices are absolutely having an effect on demand already. If you look at, I mean, our forecast of Wood Mackenzie, for instance, I think we've cut our forecast for uh, oil demand growth this year by about 2 million, 2.2 million barrels a day for the, the annual average. And a big chunk of that, maybe half of that, is coming because people are using less fuel in Europe, in Latin America, and above all in North America. And you're seeing a big change in people's driving habits people are really making efforts to drive less conserve fuel here absolutely showing up in the numbers already and so that work that the price signal should be doing of bringing global markets into alignment is underway clearly already and as i say i'm not really trying to advocate the gasoline tax cut as a brilliant bit of policy but it would provide a bit of relief for people who are really suffering at the moment people who rely on their cars for their lives for their jobs whatever it might be and as we've been saying we've talked quite a lot about this on this show in recent weeks and months this pain that is being caused by high energy prices at the moment is very real and governments really should be doing more to address it wherever they can and although this gasoline tax holiday would not be a big deal, it would be something. So, as I say, that's my free electron, which is just a little bit of uh, an argument in defense of a policy, which basically seems to be hated by everybody,
2: but- uh...
1: I can't, I gotta say something, Ed. you can't leave it with that. I gotta say something. So, when it comes to this, I feel like it highlights a couple different things for me. Curious if y'all feel differently on it. One is that how many limited tools, like the small number of tools we have to actually respond in the very short term to things like this, There's not much we can do immediately to help people at the pump immediately um, that don't require huge acts of Congress or something. Um, This is one of those things we can do, but we don't have that many tools, which goes back to the other point of we need to start thinking now about how we buffer the one in three Americans who are currently energy insecure, and we definitely don't want that number going higher in the future against high energy prices. I mean, these things are, as you say, necessary for getting us to work. Which pays the bills, which keeps the roof over our heads and the food in the fridge. So, you know, these are not theoretical impacts. These are real impacts people are feeling immediately today. And in many cases, are, you know, some of the most insecure of us in this country. And so, whether you like it or not, I would say that this is one of the few tools we have right now to help ease any of the pain that is going on right now. I think we all agree that we don't actually like that answer, that we don't have more options that we could consider. Um, so I'm not saying I'm for or against it, but it highlights a couple of different things for me. Those two things. We need to start planning for the future so we can prevent pain points. And we need to realize that people are hurting right now. They're really hurting.
0: Absolutely. I don't disagree with any of that. As you say, one of the really clear things that this is doing is revealing the paucity of our policy options. And we need much better long-term solutions than this. But unfortunately, I think that's got to be a subject for a discussion another time, for another show, because we do we do unfortunately have to to leave it here. But it's I mean it it's a you raise a lot of great points. It's a really important subject. We should definitely come back to it another time. So let's do that. But for now, anyway, that is all from the Energy Gang for this week. Uh, Elliot Meza, thank you very much indeed for coming in. It's been great talking to you. Thanks again. Very much as I say, looking forward to following the progress of California on this fascinating journey
2: over the coming years. Thank you so much for having me again, appreciate it. Melissa, thank you very much as well. Great to see you.
1: Yeah, thanks. Great to see you too, Ed and Elliot. Sending good vibes for not huge heat waves this summer. Uh, Grid stability, number one. So we'll keep sending that your way. But thanks for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation.
0: And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering, we're on Twitter, as usual, at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.